so notice from grandma all the way down to you know little little dance student what's the underlying assumption in all the cringeworthy comments that you all talked about it's that you're not whole unless you have a spouse that's the underlying assumption um people assume that you need a spouse to be complete that you need kids to be complete and i mean let's be clear marriage and children are incredible gifts i mean most of us here desire those things they are good gifts from god but some of the most significant figures in all of the history of the world specifically church history too were single and but i think it's worth us knowing the water that we're swimming in to say that the cultural assumption from people in america and western christianity is that you're not whole unless you have a spouse unless you have children and this is interesting because it's unique in that if you go back 800 years we would actually be the prized possessions of society it's singleness that was prized um if you went back to medieval monks or nuns it was singleness that was prized over marriage you it, there are actually theologians that would argue that marriage defiled you and that having sexual relations with someone defiled you even if it was your spouse and so celibate people were considered the prize of all humanity now some of us may wish that was that was true now but that's not the case and so when we sit in church services when we have conversations with folks the underlying assumption is that you're not whole unless you have a spouse and what I want us to see is that one we're not the only group of people that's ever struggled with this um, Old Testament faithful as we're gonna see in a second have struggled with this as well but that if you get anything else out of tonight it's that you are whole in yourself you, you don't have to have anybody else it's a good thing if you do but you're whole in yourself and I want us to see what the Bible has to say about singleness rather than just going to 1st Corinthians 7 which is where everybody goes it gets misinterpreted all the time. I want us to start somewhere else. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. And I want you to see this. This is a real verse in the Bible. And it's worth you following along. I'm, I'm not making this up. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles just around the corner here as well. Um, so Isaiah 56, and we're going to start in verse the second half of verse 3. Isaiah 56, the second half of verse 3. Um, I'll give you just a second to turn there. Isaiah 56, the second half of verse 3. And when you're there, look up and I'll, I'll know you're, you're at the passage. So, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this short passage, and then I'm going to explain it, and then we're going to come back and read it again in a second. So if this doesn't make sense at first, it will, it will shortly. So, Isaiah 56, second half of verse 3. Let, you, let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. What is a eunuch? Some of you, well, I'm gonna, I'll explain it. <laughs> I'll answer. Uh, a eunuch is someone who, for various reasons, was unable to reproduce and was therefore someone that typically lived a life of singleness. 
They lived in very high positions in society. Often they worked hand in hand with kings and queens. And they were some of the hardest workers that the world had ever seen. For our purposes tonight, we can replace the word eunuch with single. So let me read this passage again and see if this makes a little more sense now. So same passage. All I'm doing is replacing the word eunuch with single. Let no single complain that I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the, to the singles who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Think about that. That is an incredible promise. God is saying through the prophet Isaiah that single people, people without children or spouses, that he will give them a better name, a longer lasting name, a greater name than anything you could ever have because of marriage and children. Now, in itself, that's significant. But it'll be even more significant when you understand the context that is coming from in the Old Testament. It's easy to isolate passages of Scripture when we read But when you read them in their context, you understand the weight of the incredible revelation that God is giving us. So, what is the context of the Old Testament here? Why is is a name so significant? Why is God signaling that he's going to give them a better name? There are lots of other things we can think of that might sound more attractive, but he's saying he's going to give them a better name. So why is name so significant? Name in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, especially family names, was hugely important. So... What you'll find is that for people, they desperately wanted to have children, especially male heirs, because it got to pass on the family name. So this was hugely important. All it takes is reading a secular history book, you know, as an elementary student, to see how important names were. And if you notice the way people are described in books in the ancient Near East or in the Bible, often it is their family line that's mentioned. So name is far more significant in the Old Testament than it is to us today. When I hear your last name, I don't immediately, typically know a lot about you, but in smaller communities, you would have known so much about someone just based on their name. So it was a tragedy in these days if someone either wasn't married or didn't have kids because the name isn't getting passed on. And it's so significant that in multiple places, we see people mourning or making exceptions just to pass names on. So For example, there were laws actually made in Scripture to say that if a man's brother passed away, he could marry his wife and have kids with her so that the family name could be passed on. That's how serious it was. Or in Judges 11, the king's daughter, she finds out about her impending death, and what does she do? She asks for two months to mourn, not her impending death, but her virginity and her singleness. Can you imagine taking two months to go away and mourn your Virginian singleness. Maybe some of you can, but that, that's how serious this was in the Old Testament. And this doesn't just apply to humans. This, this is significant for God too. How does God primarily pass his name along and make his name great in the Old Testament? It's through the nation of Israel. And so each generation of the nation of Israel was a new chance for the people of Israel to make great the name of God. It's one of the reasons God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. His name would pass on to generation after generation. 
in Isaiah 48, the reason God doesn't wipe out his people in just punishment is for his name's sake, because he wants his name to spread throughout the generations. So marriage and children are hugely, hugely significant in the Old Testament. You are not seen as complete unless you had a spouse, unless you had kids. Sound familiar? We can resonate with Old Testament people in this. We can resonate with Old Testament singles in this. And yet, imagine, you're in that context. You feel, you're a single in the Old Testament, you feel absolutely worthless. And then imagine, you hear this declared over you. Let no single complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the singles who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Think about how jaw-dropping that statement would be. I mean, they have no way to even fathom the incredible nature of that promise. That is so culture-changing. Not, not just Israel, but all the, the nations in the ancient Near East are going to prize marriage and children over all else. And yet God is saying, I'm going to so turn over things in the new covenant that you single people will actually have the chance to have a better name and a better renown in the Lord than you ever could just by marriage and children. That is that's mind-blowing. So this is a hope and promise we have even for today. But it, it doesn't just stop there in Isaiah when it talks about singleness and childbearing and name. There's a more familiar passage that you might know of uh, that relates to this. So in your Bibles, just turn with me a couple, maybe one or two pages back to Isaiah 53. If you've been around church very long, you know this passage. Um, it's one of the most famous Easter passages ever. It's delivered 700 years. It's a prophecy before Jesus dies on the cross. It's prophesying what Jesus is going to do for us to take upon our sin on the cross and to save us. And, you know, some of our most famous verses, I mean, we have these, some of these memorized. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We know those verses. But have you ever noticed this in verse 10? Catch this. So Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's Jesus making the sacrifice on the cross, he, Jesus, shall see his offspring. How the heck does a single man have offspring? I mean, we know about the virgin birth, so take away the exceptions. Uh, how could Jesus possibly have offspring? He never had a spouse. He didn't have physical children that we know of. I mean, how, how could he have offspring? It's because in the New Covenant, the children of God are not primarily produced through sexual intercourse. They're produced through saving faith in Jesus Christ. That changes the whole paradigm. You understand that? Like, people in the Old Testament, and many of us today almost have no category for how to understand how paradigm-changing that is. In the New Covenant, children of God are primarily produced not through sexual intercourse or marital intimacy, but it's through saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's not intimacy with another human being that produces children of God. It's intimacy with God that produces children of God. 
So this is such a major paradigm shift that's being pointed forward to that we see, we see the fruits of this even in Isaiah 54. So look with me at the very first verses of Isaiah 54, right after this paradigm-shifting passage. Notice this, Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will be people, will people the desolate cities. So imagine that image. You, you have a woman who is barren. She can't have children, which could mean a few different things in this sense. Already it's a tragedy enough for her in her culture not to be able to have children because she can't pass on the family name. But if you look back at both church history, ancient Near East history, and just history in general, it, you don't have to look hard to find men that leave women because women can't give them children. I mean, some people argue the Protestant Reformation started because King Henry VIII couldn't have a male heir with his wife. I mean, that's, it, that seems strange in our day, but men, husbands would leave their wives sometimes because the wives couldn't give them children. So not only is she mourning childlessness, she may also, in this example, be mourning the loss of a husband. She just feels totally alone. And yet, in that morning, God comes alongside her and says, not only can you have children, but it's going to be more children than you've ever imagined. And it's going to be not just in your nation, but it's going to be in all the nations. I mean, this would be, this would be like an adrenaline shot of hope for people that thought they had no hope that felt useless in society, especially women in that day would have felt absolutely useless in that society if they couldn't have children, they weren't married. And yet God is saying, I'm going to give you a hope and a purpose beyond anything you could ever possibly imagine. It doesn't take human beings merely for me to pass on my name. I'm going to work miracles. I'm going to bring dead people to life and I'm going to use you as part of the way to do it. That is a whole paradigm shift of purpose. And the same thing applies to us today. We can all have children without ever actually being intimate with another person because we can be part of producing children of God. And Jesus understood this. Notice this. You don't have to turn here. But John 3, 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So notice, Jesus is saying, in order to be part of the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Implicit in what Jesus is saying is he's telling us this. Jesus Christ, a single man, came to earth to make children. You ever thought about that? Yes, he came to earth for salvation, but he had salvation so he could make children. Jesus Christ, a single man, came to earth to make children. And then he gives us that very same commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make apples, insert children, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Your call and my call, single, married, whatever, is to make children of God. That is our, that is our chief call in life, is to make children of God. And here's the deal. There is a beauty to this kind of call that... It's so easy to miss because I get it. 
real physical human children that you have in marriage are an incredible blessing. But here's the deal. If your children don't come to Christ, there will be a separation in eternity. And yet, when you produce children of God through discipleship, that is a relationship that will never end. There's a, there's a greater bond in some sense there. And you're still connected by blood. It's just not the blood of the mother and the child. It's the blood of a Savior. Notice this too. This isn't just kind of, you know, flowery language. Paul plays off of this for both men and women. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8, he says this. Talking about uh, how the disciples have ministered to the churches. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very own selves, because you become dear to us. Another verse, 1 Corinthians 4.15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Catch that. You can be a father and a mother in Christ. It does not just take a marriage to bear children. And this is a such a special relationship. Honestly, one, one of the greatest privileges of my life has been being a spiritual father. When I was at Mizzou, I, I helped lead a small group of guys that grew to about 20, 25 guys um, by the end. And it was just, it was one of the coolest small group experiences ever. College is such a unique time, especially if you're in a university town like that, because you can just do everything together. Um, you can study together, you can eat together, you go to church together, go to the gym together, all of it. And so we really were doing life together in that sense. And some of those guys didn't have human fathers that were around. And so I got to serve as that. Some of those guys didn't have brothers and needed someone to come alongside them. Some of them didn't have mentors, and I got to be that. I've been in their weddings. I've, I've been there when they've had children in the hospital room. I, I've been there for the 2 a.m. calls when they didn't know who else to go to. And that is an awesome relationship. It is one of my coolest and greatest privileges to be a spiritual father. I know Jay and Jane would say the same thing, that one of their greatest privileges has been being spiritual fathers and mothers to people in Christ. That is a special relationship. And we all get to do that. We all get to do that. Part of what's amazing about this too is that not only does it give us hope despite our circumstances, but it also, it gives you purpose where no one else is giving you purpose. Again, your purpose in life is not simply to be married. You have so much more value than that. And being married is a great thing. You can long for that. We're going to talk about that in a second. But the chief call that God has put on your life is to make spiritual children for his name's sake, to pass along the family line, to make his name great, to praise his name, to see people rise from death to life. And that is what greater privilege could we ever ask for? And that is the chief call in our life, whether or not we're in ministry or we work um, at Starbucks as a barista, whether we're a journalist, an engineer, whatever. In all of those times, our chief call is to make children of God. And we want to have the biggest families ever. We want to look like the Mormon families that are coming in with the huge family vans of folks. We want to have huge families. How awesome is that? So, before we go any further, I want us to stop and just talk about this at our tables. Who is a spiritual father or mother in your life? That's question number one. And two, are you the spiritual father or mother of anyone?
And if you can't think of anyone in that second question, let that, let that cause you to pause to say, what am I doing that I'm not there to disciple and mentor folks? Maybe this is the moment where God's saying, you need to step up. Reach out. Talk to someone. Be a spiritual father or mother. So, who is your spiritual father or mother? It doesn't just have to be your parents. It could be multiple people. And who are people that you have spiritually fathered or spiritually mothered? Talk about that at your tables, and then we'll get back together. Yeah, so, and if you think back fondly on those, I mean, those are people that have changed your life forever. And we, we all get to be a part of that if we would invest in it. Um, I, I remember when Brad had a significant work anniversary a few years ago, and a bunch of us filmed videos. And I think somebody said if they had actually just, like, kept all the video and not cut any of it, it could have been, like, over an hour long. And it wasn't, like, long clips. It was, like, people giving, like, two-minute little clips here and there. Um, I was just even thinking about that in my own life. Like, Brad has had a huge impact in my own life, and yet I'm just one of, you know, dozens and dozens of people he's discipled that have gone into ministry or um, gone into career fields and shared the gospel work. I mean, his spiritual family tree could be thousands, literally. Um, you can have such a huge impact. There's, having a spouse and having children are amazing gifts, and that's what we're about to talk about, but there is so much more to live for than just that. So I, I said we talk about marriage because one of the things that also can happen in talks like this is people, again, just, they just talk about dedicated singleness your whole life. They don't, it's not, that's just not realistic. Most people are not going to be that. Most of us, I imagine, will be married. Um, and so how do we think about singleness in the short term? And for the, the first thing I would say is this. The best way to prepare for marriage is by actually being single. The best way to prepare for marriage is through singleness and actually being single. Not just like I broke up with someone and so I'm already in the hunt for someone else. I'm never actually single, but actually living and resting in that singleness for however long it is. Because that makes a huge difference. And this is significant because here's the deal. You, you can't give yourself to someone else until you actually know what you're giving them. You have to know yourself before you can really know someone else. And you have to know yourself before you can actually love someone else well. And one of the most significant things I don't think we often think about with this is there is a way to desire marriage and to live well as a single person. You can do both hand in hand. Every single day, I pray for, for a number of things, but every single day I pray, one, that if it be God's will, that he would, he would provide me a spouse one day. But also that I... I would rest in him, that he would be enough for me. And those two things aren't contradictory. Some days they may feel like it, maybe a lot of days, but they're not contradictory. I imagine a lot of you probably feel that too. But here's the deal. It, again, the best way to prepare for marriage is through singleness because if you're not at rest with Jesus and your own relationship with him, there's no way you can really be at rest with someone else. So let me, let, let me give an example because I think this leads to the idea that we can have really improper expectations, even thinking about marriage itself. Um, I'll never forget listening to a college pastor talking to a group of guys about dating and marriage, and he said, describe for me your ideal spouse. And these guys start rolling off all these just kind of ridiculous things. I mean, just totally impractical. And so the, afterwards, the, the pastor summarizes, and he's like, okay, so let me get this straight. You were expecting someone that is... Um, the most beautiful person you've ever met is a fashion model 
uh, has a PhD in applied sciences, is the best cook you've ever seen. And he just starts listing off all these things. And the way he closed was he said, you really don't want to be married because no one like that actually exists. No one could ever possibly fulfill that. And clearly we see how ridiculous that is. But what I don't know that we always realize is we do the very same thing ourselves. Are you looking for someone that will totally take care of your emotional needs? Are you looking for someone that when you're with them, you would never ever feel alone or discouraged? Are you looking with someone that will meet your needs in every way? And even if you wouldn't articulate it that way, is that, is that what you're looking for? If you can say yes to any of those things, you also really don't want to be married because that person doesn't exist. Again, Jane, Jane, I know could tell you, my parents could tell you, talk to any long-term marriage, you know, any couple that's been in a long-term marriage that you know, and they will say they love their spouse with all their heart and their spouse doesn't meet all of their needs. And the irony is we pass up the very one that actually could meet all of our needs to search for someone that can't. And when we do that, we put a weight on them that crushes them because only Jesus can bear it. And so the best way for us to prepare for marriage is to rest all of those expectations and weight in Jesus because then we're not crushing our spouse. Our spouse becomes someone we can actually make spiritual children with. We can do ministry with. We can have a family with. We can serve with. We can do life with. Because it's, if, you, if you have friends that are newly married, one of the things they'll find out is how different marriage is than they expect and that not all of their dreams immediately come true. And we need to remember that. So the best way to prepare for marriage is through singleness. And think about it. The, the people you're looking for, you're not looking for someone that's just bouncing from relationship to relationship where you might be the rebound and they're just looking for the next person to date. You're looking for someone that looks settled in themselves. Let's be honest. So we should be that too. We're not asking someone else to live in a way that we wouldn't live ourselves. But it's also worth us remembering too, Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 7, marriage itself, if not done well, can be an idol factory. Why do I say that? One, not only can you idolize your spouse, but you can also idolize your kids. One of the most interesting things I've noticed working at a church especially a larger church where you do have a number of folks that can be consumeristic Christians, is this. When they have kids, they begin to take their faith more seriously. And that looks super encouraging, but what's the motivation behind that? It's because they want their kids to have a moral life, not because they love God more or they've had some spiritual awakening. It's because they just want a better life for their kids. And they come to church for 10, 12 years, and then about age, well, sometimes now it's getting younger, maybe eight, but sometimes 10 and 12, their kid picks up competitive sports and you're only finding them 1.6 times a month is the national average. Well, their kids are their idol. And then you sit across the table from them and they're complaining about being in a spiritually dry season and they haven't been to church in two months because it's baseball season. And I can tell them the answer right there and yet in their mind that hasn't even entered. So marriage is an amazing gift. I desire it so deeply. I know you guys desire it so deeply. I wanna be a father. And yet we have to have a sober view of marriage to know that if we're not careful, we don't go into marriage with the right mindset, which is actually going into singleness with the right mindset, we will crush our future spouse and our children with a weight they could never possibly bear. Your only purpose in life is not simply to have a spouse, be a trophy wife, or just to be a breadwinner. It's to be a follower of Jesus Christ that makes disciples for Jesus Christ. And if marriage is the best avenue for that, great. And if not, praise God as well.
We have to be able to have that balance because if not, we're gonna crush our future spouse. So marriage is an amazing gift. Children are amazing gifts. It's good to desire them, but you will not be prepared for it if you're not living in your singleness well. So here's, here's where I wanna, uh, want us to talk at our tables and then we're gonna go to a very last quick section of conversation. What are things in your life right now that you would say, or better yet, well, let's not even make this personal. We'll say just culturally, people our age, what are things they idolize most in their spouse? And the re- here's why I ask this. Because if we can't identify that, we don't know what to be looking out for. Because sometimes if we have unknown longings that we're trying to put in another spouse, we can't know about them to rest them actually on Jesus. So what are the things that people are desiring most out of their spouse? The things that they would crush them with without realizing it. And then that'll lead us to talk about how we can rest that in Jesus. So what do people desire most in a spouse that's unreasonable and could crush them? Talk about that at your tables. So do you, I mean, again, we're, we're using hyperbole here a little bit, but do you understand how that would be an absolutely crushing weight if, if we came in with those expectations? And yet we do it all the time without realizing it. How long has it been since you've had someone tell you that you are more than enough in yourself? And I don't mean that in like a self-help way. I genuinely mean that. For all the times you've been asked about the next boyfriend or girlfriend, or for all the times you have desired to be married in a relationship and it hasn't happened, and you're told by the water that you're swimming in that, yeah, you have to be married to be complete. How long has it been since someone has told you you're more than enough in yourself? And let that sit. How long has it been since you believed that about yourself? And here's the deal. At the end of the day, there's only one person that you ultimately need in this life, and his name is Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you're already betrothed to him, and you already have a wedding date. So rest in that freedom. But aren't we a child We are. Metaphors fall down when you're talking about an infinite God. <laughs> So, again, all that to say, marriage is an amazing gift. But you have to be able to know that you are more than complete in yourself with Jesus. Uh, It will wreck future marriages. It's the same thing that happens when a football player, when, like Tom Brady, you know, wins four Super Bowls. And they asked him about the fourth one. You know, where do you go from here? And he just, what's it like? And he's like, I don't know. I thought it'd be more. The same thing happens all the time in marriages in Christian communities when they put all the weight on that. So let's not do that. And the, here's the hope that we have. We have everything we need in Jesus, and it frees us up not to have to look for someone that could meet all those expectations. We can, we can look in freedom to know we don't have to find someone that's going to meet our every need. We just need to find someone that's going to help push us to love Jesus more and to make children of God, whether that's intimately or through discipleship, whatever. So, here's, here's where I want us to, to close on this. It, again, this is, this is also the part that doesn't get talked about as much, but for all our culture says that you have to be married to be complete, they have no idea what to do with Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Jesus was a single man on earth. He was never married. Are we saying that he wasn't complete? The Apostle Paul was the greatest church planner the world's ever seen. Without him, we might not be here today. He was more than complete. And you can see him talk about it all the time in 1 Corinthians. So, 
if we don't have a category to say you can be complete in ourselves, we, we don't have a biblical view of singleness. I think that's what we face a lot. And here's, here's the incredible reality that we get to face is when you know your calling is bigger than yourself, it's bigger than just another person, it motivates you to go to incredible lengths. So think your calling is to make children of God, to be spiritual fathers and mothers, to share the gospel. And here's what I know about that, that for a lot of us, especially for more introverted, or maybe we're newer Christians, we don't feel confident in our faith, that just seems like the most terrifying call to life because it's, look, I have trouble speaking up at church, let alone to a non-Christian person in my work or a stranger I've never met. You think, well, I don't have a theology degree. I don't, I don't know enough. I don't know my Bible well enough. What do they ask me different questions? Catch this. Uh, turn with me here. Catch this in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I want you to have this verse. Most of us in this room are never going to go into ministry. We're never going to have PhDs in uh, biblical theology. And yet, that doesn't excuse us from the call. In fact, the Bible empowers us to share the gospel in spite of it. Acts chapter 4 in verse 13. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Notice this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It doesn't take a theology degree to make children of God and share the gospel. It doesn't take knowing your Bible front and back, although that helps. It doesn't take knowing all the answers to all the questions. No one does. All it takes is that someone can see that you have been with Jesus. And think about it. There are a ton of people with theology degrees that speak nothing like the Savior they they claim to know so well. I, I get to see it. Yet, we can all think of people who have no theology degree, have no extended education in the Bible. They are just faithful Christians. And when you are around them, it is like, oh my gosh, I think I just entered into the presence of the Lord. That's what people need to experience when they are around us. All it takes is having a personal encounter with the Lord. If you are a Christian here tonight, you are qualified enough to share the gospel. Think about that. Let that be an empowering thing to you, that you can embrace the call that's been put on your life, whether you're going to be single for a long time or a short time. You have this incredible call to be a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, to share the gospel. And it's not just confined to one place. It could be all over. Maybe that looks like going on a mission trip or sharing the gospel with the person in the cubicle next to you or asking someone after class um, to come to church and talk to them about the gospel. Whatever it looks like, we can all experience that and be a part of it. For all that we can feel devalued in our modern churches, what people forget is that the modern church would be nowhere without single people. The Apostle Paul, obviously without Jesus, I mean, my goodness, um, but we could think of single person after single person after single person who was able to uniquely devote their time and energy in whatever vocation they were in to the local church and beyond, and they changed the world because of it. So here's, here's how I want us to close. What would it look like if we all took that call seriously, whether here at PV or if our home church is somewhere else at another church? What would it look like if we took that call seriously? How, how much could this place change? How, how many more people could be reached for the gospel if we took that call and that charge seriously? And so, here's how I want us to close. I want us to just take a second, privately, 
Um, and then if you can have someone at your table pray for this, that God would motivate us to take that call. Um, I, I was sitting in a conference this week uh, at Midwestern, and I, I felt an element of this like I'd never felt before, where I, I was listening to a pastor named J.D. Greer give a sermon on Romans 10, and he, he made the comment, he said that you should give your yes to God and let him put it on the map. And talked about how single people have a uniqueness here because they don't have a family and kids to do that. So that's one of my pleasures here at Pleasant Valley is I get to serve the church in a unique way that I couldn't if I had a wife and kids. I still desire a wife and kids, but I'm able to serve saints in a special way because I have a different kind of flexibility. It doesn't mean what I'm doing is less valuable. It doesn't mean that I'm less busy in any sense, but it does mean that I'm able to serve in a unique way. And we can all do that if we're in a season of singleness. So at your tables... Take a second and ask God genuinely, holding your life plans loosely, God, where is it you would have me serve? In what way would you have me serve to make children of God? And then have someone at your table pray, and then we're going to have Caroline come up and we're going to sing one final song. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're more than enough. God, we thank you that you made us complete in ourselves that we don't have to be, we're not, we're not the measure of our relationship status. God, that you have uniquely made each and every one of us to spread your gospel and your name like we could never imagine. So God, however you would have us do that, whether that's through a good and faithful marriage, whether that's through long-term singleness, short-term, whatever it looks like, God, would we be faithful to that call? Would we hold our life plans loosely? God, would you work wonders here, God, that beyond our imagination, that in this room represents not people that are incomplete, that are failures by family's estimations, but one of the most incredible gifts and opportunities to the church that we could serve in a way that almost no one else could. So God, would you stir that call in our lives? Would you stir that in us as a ministry that people would notice a difference in the world because 20-somethings is here and because 20-somethings is serving in a way like no one could imagine? God, help us rest in you, and thank you, thank you that you betrothed yourself to us. And may we enjoy you above all else. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.